She's a business mogul. Number one. And wellness expert. How can I help? And now Chantel Ray and her amazing guests are here to guide you on your wellness journey. Time to level up. Welcome to the Waste Away Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. And we have Paul Saladino, who's a board certified medical doctor. And we are going to be talking all about how to take your health to the next level. I'm super excited. I've been following all of Paul's stuff. He actually lives in Costa Rica, right near one of my best friends. And so it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to doing what you're doing. I grew up in a medical family. My dad's a doctor, mom's a nurse, which means that I was exposed to medicine as a kid and also means that I got over-medicated as a kid. Like many kids, I had allergies, I had asthma, and I had eczema, which is part of this atopic triad. But for whatever reason, with all of this medical background in my family, there was never any attention to the foods I was eating. I think my parents wanted to do the best I could, but they didn't necessarily think about that stuff. And instead I got medications, medications for my asthma, inhalers, pills, allergy medications, allergy shots. So I think that I grew up as a kid over-medicated and that was frustrating for me. I had a love of science in school and college. And I thought about going into medicine, but after college, I actually took six years off and was a ski bum. I traveled. I went spent time in New Zealand. Uh, I threw like the Pacific Crest Trail. Eventually I ended up back in medicine first as a physician assistant. I worked in cardiology for four years and then I went to medical school at the University of Arizona and then did residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. And during the time when I was in medical school, I had the time as a PA shaping me in my medical focus and my medical perspective. And what I mean by that is that when I was a physician assistant in cardiology, I quickly realized that what I was doing and what I saw the medical system doing seemed broken to me. It didn't seem like we were getting to the root cause of an illness. Just like my parents hadn't really been addressing the root cause of my issues as a kid, which I took into my adulthood. I had eczema throughout my adult life. The medical system wasn't doing that. We were really good at diagnosing things and giving them a fancy name and prescribing medications, which sometimes help, but almost all the time have associated side effects, which are sometimes worse than the original thing you're trying to fix. And I just wasn't interested in that. I think that for whatever reason, philosophically, I wanted to understand what was causing illness. I think that I'm more of an engineer than a doctor in my mind, and I want to know how things work. I never wanted to not understand how my body works. And I was sort of fascinated by this apparent unsolvable riddle. Why do people get sick? Well, if you ask Western medicine and what I was hearing from the medicine that I was learning and the rotations I was doing in both PA school and medical school and residency, we don't know why people get sick. It's bad genetics. And that, and and the only thing you can do is give medications. And I thought that's an unacceptable answer to me. I just thought that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. That's, I don't believe that. I think that's wrong. I think there are things happening to us as humans that are preventable, that are malleable, that are changeable in our environment, in the way that we eat. And I think that could be very powerful for humans. And this chronic disease epidemic that we have, whether it's autoimmune disease, eczema, psoriasis, autoimmune thyroid disease, lupus, depression, dementia, cancer, cardiovascular disease, stroke. We all know people who are affected by these. Almost every single person listening to this podcast has somebody in their family that's affected by these things. 
But I'm willing to bet that even though those people listening are going to doctors that are super smart and probably well-intentioned, very few of those doctors are telling these people that those things are fixable. The message is just, well, we don't know what to do. We don't know how you got it, but this is the best medication we have. And that, that to me was just never interesting, especially because I had eczema and I thought there is something going on here. This is my immune system reacting against my skin. I think it's my food. So for a lot of my life, I was thinking about food. I had different phases in my life. I did all sorts of diets. I did a vegan diet for seven months. I was a raw vegan. That didn't help my eczema, but I got bad, bad gas and lost a lot of lean muscle mass. So I got way too skinny and underweight. I did paleo. I did autoimmune paleo. I did all sorts of different dietary strategies. And at most recently, I found myself in my residency in Seattle with a pretty bad flare of eczema eating what I thought was a really darn good diet. It was paleo. It was almost entirely organic. So I was eating fruit. I was eating vegetables. I was eating nuts and seeds. I was eating some mushroom extracts. I was eating grass-fed meat. And I think that was what I was eating. And I thought, why is my eczema so bad right now? <laughs> I'm not eating any processed food, not eating any soda, not eating any bread, gluten-free, but I have horrible eczema to the point that it was all over my body at one point. And I thought, okay, this is weird. So that was the genesis of the beginning of my thinking that many of the things that we think of as healthy for humans at various levels may not be healthy for all humans. This is the beginning of the carnivore phase where I just ate meat and organs and animal fat and salt for a year and a half. Eczema gets better, but then I run into issues with ketosis and low carbohydrates leading to muscle cramps, electrolyte issues, sleep disturbances, things like this. The next phase was kind of reincorporating what I see as the least toxic carbohydrates for humans in the form of honey and fruit. And we can talk about why I think those are the least toxic forms of carbohydrates. But what I learned through all of that was something that flies in the face of Western medicine in so many ways. I think most people now have at least entertained the idea that maybe grains are not great for all people. Gluten-free isn't super controversial, but very few people understand that vegetables can be harmful to humans. And if you listen to Harvard or Mayo Clinic, they're going to tell you to eat seed oils, vegetable oils. And I think that's the completely wrong advice. So I think that basically the advice we're getting from the United States government, USDA guidelines, the food pyramid, they're completely wrong. You know, rather than making the majority of your diet grains, vegetables, and seed oils, I've come to believe that people should make the majority of their diet animal foods, things like fruit, honey, get some organs in there and avoid seed oils like the plague. So it's put me in an interesting position because almost everything I say runs counter to what mainstream medicine tells us to believe and what your doctor will tell you. So even if you get dietary advice from your doctor, it's likely to be something different than what I would recommend to people. So in short, my journey was growing up in medicine, over-medicated, having my own issues, and really wanting to fix my own things and getting curious about what might be a good diet for most humans based on my own issues. Mm. Well, I have a ton of questions for you. And I think this next question will go right into, uh, a it's in a really good spot. So this is from Stephanie in St. Cloud, Minnesota. She says, I have autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis and eczema, just like you. And I'm deciding on which plan I want to go on that helps me best with my inflammation and my autoimmune disease. My doctor wants me to go on a weekly shot or I could take methotrexate and prednisone. And it sounds like carnivore or animal-based or the Paul Saladino diet 
or autoimmune paleo diet would be my best choices. I'm really getting confused on all the differences between them. I don't understand why vegetables are toxic, but I want to know the root cause of why they would be, and that doesn't really make sense to me. I want to know the root of why veggies could be toxic. And she kind of goes on, but I'm going to stop it right there. So just kind of explain, because that is true. Those are kind of the, the biggest four, right? Like the animal-based diet, the paleo diet, carnivore diet, Paul Saladino diet. And then also the fifth, the fifth one would be that autoimmune paleo diet. So kind of explaining some of the differences and why you like yours, obviously, the best. Yeah, I don't ever really call anything the Paul Saladino diet. I, I okay. I did coin the term. I did coin the term animal based. Okay. And, and I do. I do advocate for an animal based diet. I don't think it's mine or that I have any ownership of it. There's no IP there other than the fact that I maybe made the term up. And I can talk about why I think an animal based diet is great for a lot of humans based on historical context, anthropology, and where we've come from as humans evolutionarily. But um, yeah, we can talk about the differences differences between those diets. So let's start with vegetables, though, and address that question. This this person in your audience is interesting because they're at a very common place. They have issues that they've gone to see a doctor about. And like we talked about in the podcast, the doctor is recommending medications. And those medications may be effective for her rheumatoid arthritis, which is probably manifesting as joint pain or joint destruction or other pervasive symptoms with RA, which can be quite systemic in the human body, and eczema. But those medications are going to have side effects. I mean, methotrexate is is there to prevent basically the formation of B vitamins in the human body, and it can cause other. It has all sorts of negative side effects in terms of blood cell formation and anemias, and it's it's not a benign drug. And certainly, whatever shot she's taking is a biologic, probably a monoclonal antibody against something like TNF alpha, uh, which is tumor necrosis factor alpha. And when you take those monoclonal antibodies it may calm down your immune system, but then you're at a much higher risk of community-acquired pneumonias or blood cancers, leukemias, lymphomas later in your life. So you don't really go messing with the way that nature has designed the human body with medications or monoclonal antibodies without paying a, a dear price later in life. So this is not, to me, the best strategy. The best strategy would be, what if something in your diet is causing your immune system to be disordered? That is the premise that we're operating on here. That is the premise that I think Western medicine is missing. And so my take on this is what are the most immunogenic foods? What are the foods that are going to essentially piss off your immune system the most? So most people will understand that probably processed food, which is a broad term, and I can define that more specifically, are probably going to piss off your immune system. I don't think seed oils are great. We can talk about why that is later in the podcast. But it doesn't sound like this person is even thinking about eating a processed food diet. She's mainly thinking, okay, I'm going to eat a non-processed food diet. What are the next things that could anger my immune system and to be triggering these autoimmune conditions? Rheumatoid arthritis and eczema are both autoimmune. The immune system is reacting against the human body. And so I think that we have to remember that the, the immune system, the majority of your immune system lives around your gut. It lives around your small intestine, around your large intestine, in a layer of cells called the lamina propria. There's, the majority of your immune system lives there. And so your immune system is programmed by genetics, by your history, where you've come from. But also there's a lot of crosstalk between your environment, specifically your gut luminal environment, what things you put in your body and your immune system. There's a very thin layer of cells called an endothelium, a gastrointestinal epithelium that kind of demarcates the inside of your body from the outside of your body. The inside of your body being your immune system and the lamina propria, the outside of your body being everything you're putting in your mouth that then passes out your anus eventually is outside of your body, but it has a crosstalk. It has an information that it gives to your body. 
And that layer of immune cells in your gut is where it's really ground zero. It's where everything happens. It's where either the gut cells are healthy and they're tightly linked and the immune system on the other side is not getting pissed off or these gut cells and the bacteria that are inside your gut are getting disordered. The populations are kind of off because something in your diet is irritating that gut lining or is changing the population of gut flora, changing the bacteria in your gut, changing the mucosal layer in your gut, which sort of coats that bacterial layer and coats that endothelial layer in your gut. So that interaction between the foods you eat and your immune system is really paramount. So let's go to vegetables and I'll tie these two things together. If you think about a plant, don't think about vegetables, just think about a plant. You are a plant. You are rooted in the ground. You can't run away. So in my book, The Carnivore Code, which I wrote a number of years ago, and um, I, I give this analogy to imagine being buried up to your neck in the sand and your face is painted like a soccer ball and then a big truckload of kids arrives and they don't have anything to play with. They're going to come over and kick your face. Like your face is painted like a soccer ball. You're buried up to your neck in the sand. That's how plants probably feel when herbivorous animals, when animals that want to eat their leaves or their roots or their stems come around. The plant can't run away from you. Animals can run away. They have defense mechanisms. They can gore you. They can bite you. They can kick you. All these things. Plants can't run away. What does that mean? It means that over the last 450 million years of coevolution between insects, animals, and plants, plants and animals have been at a constant war, a chemical war. Plants must develop defense chemicals, especially in their above ground parts, but also in their below ground parts to ward off unchecked consumption by animals, insects, fungi, or else plants and these sorts of things that want to consume them would never coexist. So what are vegetables? Vegetables are leaves, stems, roots, and seeds of plants. These are the parts of a plant that a plant must have if it wants to pass its genes to the next generation. Basically, the plant stem is used to, to prop up the leaves high enough so the leaves can gather sunlight and make glucose. Plants make sugar. They make their own food from the sun. It's sometimes stored in their roots. So plants use roots, stems, and leaves to make energy, to make babies, which are seeds, and then they move those seeds to the next generation. And at every step of that path, that plant's DNA, all of that plant's energy is going into maintaining the plant, but moving it to the next generation. It's like us as humans. We have children, we move our DNA to the next generation. That's part of why we're here for a lot of people. That's why plants are on the earth. If plants want to continue, they're moving their seeds. In order to protect those seeds, they must put defense chemicals in the seeds. They must put things like oxalates, digestive enzyme inhibitors, things like you know, other toxins in some cases, plant seeds are frankly toxic, neurotoxins, lectins, which are carbohydrate binding proteins. I mean, ricin, ricin is one of the most historically used toxins out there. And it's a lectin, it's a carbohydrate binding protein derived from a plant seed. Ricin, the ricin letters were famous in the 90s or early 2000s. I think Obama was sent a letter that was contaminated with ricin. There was a whole there's a big, like ricin is a major toxin for people that were around in the 1990s, early 2000s for chemical warfare. That's derived from a plant. That is a lectin. And that lectin goes into your body and deactivates all of your ribosomes. And these are where the proteins get made in the human body. So plants have defense chemicals, especially in their seeds. But remember that grains, nuts, seeds, and beans are all plant seeds. If you plant those, they're all going to grow into plants. And so seeds are highly defended. You can look at any seed and find lots and lots of defense chemicals. And you can do the same with leaves. Spinach is a great example. We've been told, Popeye, eat your spinach. But that spinach is full of oxalates. 
oxalates are technically dicarboxylic acids. Functionally, they accumulate in the human body and cause in many people, some people, the most common type of kidney stone, which is calcium oxalate. But they also appear to accumulate in the neuro, in the neurologic system, potentially, in the joints, in the breast tissue, in the thyroid. So having too much oxalate is a problem for humans. We make a little bit, but you can increase your oxalate consumption. You can increase the levels of oxalate in your body by 10x, 5x or 10x a day by eating things like chocolate, turmeric powder, spinach, rhubarb, almonds, beets. These are all really, really large sources of oxalate. And there are documented cases of people dying from oxalate toxicity, something that's found in a lot of foods that we eat. So you could technically probably kill yourself if you just ate a ton of spinach. You'd have to eat pounds and pounds of spinach, but even one cup of spinach has a significant amount of oxalates, way, way, way more than you would ever make in a day in the human body from the breakdown of certain amino acids. So kale, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, these are all in the brassica family. They contain a family of compounds called isothiocyanates. These compounds exert their defense actions by inhibiting the absorption of iodine in our diet. So your thyroid doesn't work well without iodine, which is a mineral that you need to make thyroid hormone, the sort of master regulatory thermostat hormone in the human body. Oatmeal is a seed. Oats are a seed. We think of them as a grain, but oats have been thought of as a very good breakfast for humans. But oats contain so many problematic things for humans. They contain phytic acid, which is a large molecule like chelase minerals, prevents their absorption. Oats contain saponins, along with quinoa is another common source of saponins. These damage the gut directly. Oats are contaminated with heavy metals because they actually contain genes that hold on to heavy metals. So oats have all sorts of defense chemicals. Chocolate, people don't like to hear this, but chocolate contains pretty significant amounts of lead and cadmium because of the way that those heavy metals are accumulating in the seeds of that plant. So these defense chemicals can prevent us from absorbing nutrients that we need to make building blocks for humans. They can directly damage the gut. They can indirectly damage the gut, like lectins, which are prominent in things like beans and seeds. These seem to disrupt the gut flora in major ways. And they can you know, inhibit our digestion of these foods, causing all sorts of issues. So what you have with vegetables is warfare. If we make the majority of our diet vegetables, you're eating the most defended parts of plants. End of story. You're eating the, 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 the most highly problematic foods for humans before processed foods came around, right? If you look at indigenous cultures, the Hadza, the Khoisan, the Samburu, they don't eat a lot of vegetables. In fact, they really don't eat, quote, vegetables unless they're starving. What do they want to eat? And the anthropologists, Frank Marlowe, have done these studies. They eat meat, they eat honey, they eat berries, they eat, when they eat meat, they eat the organs, they eat the whole animal. They eat something called the baobab fruit. And their least favorite thing is tubers. So a lot of times when they eat the tubers, they just chew the, the fiber and they spit it out and they just get the starch or the water out of the tuber. Sometimes they cook them, but it's pretty rare. You don't see the Hadza eating salads. Our history as humans, we didn't eat salads. We didn't eat a lot of seeds unless we were starving, starving, starving. They're survival food, they're fallback foods. But we've been told to make them the majority of our diet. And I think that's where a lot of humans run into problems. Some people can tolerate some vegetables. And yeah, if you cook the vegetables, you can detoxify them somewhat. But if you look at them on a per defense chemical basis, a lot of those defense chemicals are resilient to cooking. Saponins, you can't get rid of saponins. Phytic acid, you can't cook it out. You can ferment phytic acid out, but you can't, get, you can't ferment saponins out. There's like no way to get rid of them. You can't get rid of lectins very easily. You have to pressure cook the heck out of something if you're going to get rid of lectins. 
just cooking your oatmeal, just cooking your beans doesn't get rid of lectins. You have to pressure cook them at very high temperature to get rid of lectins a significant way. So you end up with people eating raw vegetables, undercooked beans, you know, grains that are not fermented. Like if you want to eat a lot of vegetables and plant foods, you have to detoxify it. But none of us has time for that and nobody wants to do it. And why would you do that when you can get the same nutrients you get in those foods in much more bioavailable forms in greater amounts with much fewer toxins in animal foods? So, so that's explain that, explain that. So what would you, if you wanted to do that with the vegetables, how, what would you do? So if you wanted cauliflower, let's say you were just like, I'm dying for cauliflower right now. What would you do so that you felt like you, your body would digest it and process it easier? You'd have to do the experiment and be very honest with how your body's digesting it. You probably want to pressure cook it and then maybe ferment it. So you'd probably have to spend two days preparing your cauliflower before you even eat it. So you wouldn't just want to boil it because even boiled cauliflower, you're still going to have isothiocyanates being transformed at their active forms in your gut, inhibiting the absorption of iodine. So you'd want to boil it, pressure cook it, and then ferment it. So you've got a two-day wow. process to prepare the cauliflower. You might as well be starving. Like <laughs> You better not have anything to eat if you're going to spend that much time making cauliflower less, like the least amount toxic. Now, people think of sauerkraut. A lot of people like pickles. Well, pickles are a fruit because they're a cucumber. We didn't talk about fruit yet, but I'll talk about how that's different than all the vegetables because fruit is different. But cabbage is a leaf. Cabbage is a brassica leaf. And sauerkraut technically is a fermented leaf. So some things are going to be less problematic in cabbage. It's going to get rid of many of those isothiocyanates in that family of plant leaves. The problem is that cabbage and lettuce can also accumulate the heavy metals just because of the way that plants take up those heavy metals and put them into the leaves and no amount of fermentation is going to get rid of those heavy metals. But if you really, really want it to be cabbage, the best way to do it, relatively speaking, would be to ferment it. Let me give you another question, and this is a long one, so we can break it up. It's from yeah. Leah in Fort Worth, Texas. She says, lots of meat may cause constipation. How do you, how do you suggest combat combating that, and how can you poop more? Why is white rice less toxic than other types of rice and grains? Is chlorophyll healthy for humans? What are your thoughts on sea moss? What do you do when you go to eat out and go on vacation? What would the choices you would eat? What about the amount of sugar that's in fruit? And what's your favorite choices? And some say some carnivore diets and animal-based say that you can have coffee, but some animal-based say no coffee at all. So let's break that up. And then yeah, I'm going to read them to me. One of the, feed them to yeah, me I'll feed them to you one at a time, but I will read yeah. this one. It's basically the same one. It's from Sadie in Seattle, Washington. Being on a carnivore diet makes me extremely constipated. What can you do to be able to go to the bathroom more regularly? I know that I've heard on your podcast that most of the guests say that you should either go poop at least every day, but preferably with every meal. So if you ate two meals, go poop twice. What can you do about being more regular on a carnivore or animal-based diet? So, so we'll let's start with that. Yeah, let's define animal-based versus carnivore. So I think of animal-based as organs and meat, which is essentially carnivore, plus fruit, honey, and raw dairy. So when you add fruit into your diet, you're going to get fiber. I don't think fiber is critical for humans. When I was eating a carnivore diet, I pooped every day. I definitely pooped less because without fiber, 
the volume of your poop is smaller. And some people might think they're constipated, but I think some people have a gut that's not super healthy and you might need a little bit of fiber as you adjust. I think also that as people adjust their amount of fiber in their diet up or down, you can run into issues with the gut adjusting. So I had a friend recently that that changed to an animal-based diet. And after the first two days, she said, I haven't pooped. And I said, well, how much fruit are you eating? And she said, I'm eating a lot of fruit. I said, okay, good. Give it another day. And by the third day, she was pooping just fine. So I think that if you're eating a lot of insoluble fiber in things like grains or cereal or potatoes, and you go to just fruit and honey, your gut's going to take a moment to adjust, but most people will still poop just fine when they're getting oranges, apples, bananas. These kind of things usually don't have any problem with people pooping. I'm not really an advocate for just meat and organs. Those are very nutritious foods for humans. But as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that humans do well without carbohydrates in their diet. I think that carbohydrates, especially from fruit and honey, provide a signal of abundance. They allow us to have a postprandial insulin spike, which is beneficial and healthy for humans and allows us to hold on to minerals at the level of our kidneys. Otherwise, we become very mineral deficient and people have to end up supplementing with tons and tons of electrolytes on ketogenic diets when they could just eat carbohydrates, less toxic carbohydrates and be fine. So <clears throat> I don't think that zero carb is the answer for most people. Maybe in the short term, maybe if you're very frankly diabetic or massively insulin resistant, cut the carbohydrates down, but just for a short amount of time. I wouldn't do it more than a few days because your body is going to want those carbohydrates and I don't think they're bad for you. I know someone asked a question there about fruit and sugar and we'll get to that, but I think that the the answer on, on carnivore is add some fruit and you'll poop just fine. Um, and if you're intent on just doing meat and organs, make sure you're getting enough fat and that will help with pooping as well. So I think the problem for most people when they go strict carnivore is they don't eat enough fat and they're just doing basically lean meat. Well, your gut isn't going to work well without some animal fat. That's usually supposed to come with that meat. Again, I'm not an advocate for that necessarily. Um, yeah. What was the next question? Okay. Why is white rice less toxic than other type of rice and grains? Yeah. So I'm not a huge fan of white rice, but of the grains, I think it's probably one of the most benign. I don't eat white rice, but if you look at brown rice, there's a lot of arsenic in the hull. So like I mentioned with oats or cacao seeds, seeds tend to accumulate heavy metals. And this is documented. I'm not making this up. There was a recent Consumer Reports article looking at lead and cadmium in chocolates. They tested 28 different chocolates. All the brands you guys have heard and, and bought at Whole Foods or whatever grocery store you go to are in this review. And every single brand had significant levels of lead and mercury. 26 of the 28 brands had either more than your recommended daily allowance or the maximum daily intake of lead or cadmium in it in one serving, which was one ounce. Lead, I think, is 0.9 micrograms and cadmium might be 4.1 micrograms. I'm just pulling numbers out of my hair head, but I think that's that's the right numbers. Many of the chocolate bars had more in one ounce of chocolate than you are recommended to get of lead and cadmium in a whole day. So this is the problem is that brown rice accumulates arsenic. So if you're eating a lot of brown rice, you're just getting a lot of arsenic. Arsenic is a heavy metal. Heavy metals are things people know about. You've heard about them. Mercury, cadmium, lead, arsenic, cesium, things like this. They're problematic for humans. We're not really, our body, our physiology doesn't run well with these things. Lead is think, something we think about with kids. It really slows their development, causes decreased intelligence, decreased, decreased motor development. 
catamium is associated with hormonal problems, birth defects, infertility, probably increased rate of cancers, arsenic, mercury, same things. So you don't want a lot of heavy metals. And white rice strips the hull, so it's going to have less arsenic. It still has a little, but it has less. And other grains, individual problems with specific grains based on which type of grain it is. But yeah. Okay. And is chlorophyll healthy for humans? And what is your thoughts on CMOS? I feel like there's a lot of videos now, like on Facebook and TikTok about chlorophyll and CMOS. That's probably where she's coming up with this question. I've never seen any solid data to suggest that either of those things is beneficial for humans. So I'll talk about chlorophyll first. Chlorophyll is this pigment that is used that makes things green. It's sort of the plant's equivalent of heme. So in, in red blood cells, we have a large molecule called heme, which chelates an iron. And, you know, this, this molecule in the middle is, is akin to chlorophyll in plants. Ours is red, theirs is green. But maybe there's a little bit of evidence that chlorophyll is beneficial, but I don't think it's very, I don't think it's particularly compelling. I don't think humans need chlorophyll. Um, I'm kind of underwhelmed by the evidence on CMOS also. I tend to not really like algaes because, or these, you know, ocean-derived things because they do have heavy metals. I believe CMOS does contain carrageenan, just naturally occurring, but these long sulfated polysaccharides are not easy for our body to digest. You find carrageenan in things like non-dairy creamer or dairy creamers. They're, it's a thickening agent used in a lot of these plant milks. It's used in processed meat. It's used in things like um, cold cuts of the deli. And there's pretty pretty significant evidence in both animal and human trials that carrageenan is inflammatory for the gut. So I think CMOS is kind of overrated, massively overrated. If you want your skin to look good, which I think is why people take CMOS, just eat some collagen, some bone broth or something. But I don't think you digest that CMOS well. And I have concerns that it's irritating your gut because of the carrageenan in it. You guys, if you've been listening to my podcast, you know I've been talking about Masszymes, which is a digestive enzyme from Bioptimizers. And I want you to know that here's the thing. For me, having a digestive enzyme is a game changer because one of the biggest things that happens to me is I get really tired after my meal if I don't do it. And I have a problem with nutrient absorption. So if you could be eating the cleanest diet ever, but if you're not absorbing it, that's an issue. So this month, they're doing a really great special and you're going to get a free bottle of the digestive enzymes from Bioptimizers. And so all you have to do is pay a nominal shipping fee. That's it. No other strings attached. It's the best thing ever. So get your free bottle of digestive enzymes. It's called Masszymes. Go to masszymes.com slash wasteaway free and use the coupon code wasteaway10. That's it. So masszymes.com slash wasteaway free. Use the coupon wasteaway10. It's awesome. So what about the amount of sugar that's in fruit and what's kind of your favorite go-tos on fruit? Are you like, I'm not worried about the amount of sugar because I'm working out so much? And what about somebody who is not working out as much as you are? Obviously, you are in great shape and you work out a lot so you can have more fruit. What would your recommendation for someone who's not wanting to eat too much fruit, but where's that balance? Yeah. So at my website, which is paulsaladinomd.co, there's a free animal-based calculator. You can put in your weight, your activity level, and 
for both men and women will give you recommendations, broad recommendations in terms of macros, carbohydrates, protein, and fat per day. So you can see that. And I think that the carbohydrate piece is dependent on your activity level and probably your baseline level of metabolic health. So for people who are moving a lot and are metabolically healthy, you can probably eat as much fruit and honey as you want, almost. I mean, I'll have 200, 300 plus grams of carbohydrates a day from fruit and honey and lactose in, in raw milk. And I think it's fine. I mean, it doesn't change my metrics of insulin sensitivity. I don't gain weight. I, the more I eat, the better, actually, um, in terms of hormonal health and energy and, and sleep. So, But if somebody is not as active, maybe they're only working out a few times a week or they just do a light walk in the morning, you can scale down the carbohydrates. If somebody is coming to the program and they are insulin resistant, they're obese, they want to lose weight or they're diabetic, then I think you can scale down the carbohydrates even more, but I wouldn't do zero carbohydrate. So I would say for most people, the bottom end of carbohydrates is around 100 grams a day. I don't think you want to get any less than 100 grams. The top end, I mean, who knows what the top end is? I mean, I've worked with NFL players and I recommend 400 grams of carbohydrates a day. Fine, 500, do it. So there's a large range in terms of carbohydrates. Now, we talked about rice. People are not used to getting that amount of carbohydrates from fruit and honey because those are simple carbohydrates and they're quote unquote sugar. But if you look at the medical literature, I have never been able to find or had anyone present me with a piece of literature that shows that fruit is bad for humans. There's great evidence that even fruit juice, blood orange juice, regular orange juice, improve endothelial function. Grape juice improves endothelial function. Um, fruit juice improves endothelial function. Endothelium is the inside of your vessels, the blood vessels. It's also the inside of your gut lining, but now we're talking about vascular endothelium, not gastrointestinal epithelium. So endothelial function is improved by, by fruit juice. People fear the sugar in fruit, but it doesn't, I've, I talk about this all the time. There's no evidence that it's harmful for humans. It doesn't cause insulin resistance. It won't cause you to gain weight. If you're massively insulin resistant, it may cause a slight bump in your blood sugar, but I don't even think it's going to be that bad. There's studies in diabetics where they give them 125 to 150 grams of honey per day. That's 10 tablespoons of honey per day in a diabetic and their insulin sensitivity gets better. So there's lots of evidence that honey is even beneficial for odontal health for your teeth. There's lots of evidence in the dental literature that, that honey is beneficial. It's antibacterial. It's been used to treat all sorts of bacterial infections in the mouth and elsewhere. It's associated with many cardiovascular benefits. So don't fear fruit and honey. Now, if somebody is not used to doing a lot of honey, I, I get most of my honey in milk. So I'll drink a, a number of glasses of raw milk per day and I'll put honey in my milk. I don't fear it. But I think that people can use things like white rice or sweet potatoes, which are kind of in the middle for me. They're kind of in the gray area, the yellow zone, if they want to increase their carbohydrates. But I don't think things like grains are great sources of carbohydrates for humans. And I certainly don't think that processed sugar or sodas are good sources of carbohydrates for humans. So, But I wouldn't fear fruit and I wouldn't fear the sugar in fruit. It's, it's clearly beneficial for humans. And I think that the reason sugar broadly gets a bad rap is when we conflate data looking at things like high fructose corn syrup or highly processed sugars or foods containing highly processed sugars. And we try to conflate that with things like fruit and honey, which are non-processed. If you actually look at high fructose corn syrup, which is a different, completely different thing than fruit sugar, you'll find that it's 
often contaminated with all sorts of negative things, even heavy metals in that from the way they process it. Organic solvents from the way they have to extract it and make it. So high fructose corn syrup technically should be fructose and glucose, but it's also fructose and glucose plus a whole bunch of other contaminants. Have you heard of this thing called a peel? It's a coating that's being sprayed on avocados, apples, lemons, limes, and a few other fruits in the United States. And um, it's derived from seed oils. And those seed oils, it's grapeseed oil, is made into mono and diglycerides, which is going to probably cause a significant amount of trans fat. But the other problem with a peel is that if you look at the actual data, you'll see that when they spray this thing on the fruit, it's contaminated with all sorts of heavy metals and heptane, things they use, organic solvents they use to make it. So I believe palladium and other heavy metals are in this appeal coating, which is going on foods. And it's just a very small little label on the food. It's on that little sticker you see on the food. And there's a number and there's a barcode, but there's a very small little thing in there that says appeal, A-P-E-E-L. So it's the same idea with sugars. If you have a highly processed sugar, high fructose corn syrup or others, is that sugar contaminated with things that could be causing us to think that they're problematic for humans? Well, answer this for me. With some carnivore diets, they say that you can have coffee, but animal-based says no. Explain what, why you aren't a big fan of coffee. So if I answer this question about coffee, and now that I've already talked about chocolate, people are just going to stop the podcast. But I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, uh, uh, at this point, I'll just plead the fifth, but I'll actually tell you guys. You can just skip over this part, this part if you want, um, if you don't want me to ruin your coffee. I don't think that coffee is the worst thing that most people are doing in their life. And, um, you know, my friend that just started doing animal-based was continuing to drink coffee, and I think she feels fine with the coffee. I realized that if I say coffee is harmful for humans, I'm basically alienating 90 plus percent of your audience because coffee is pervasive. But I think that with coffee, we just have to ask ourselves why we're drinking it and how many of us are using it as a crutch. So the main problem that I have with coffee, you can all put your earmuffs on now if you want, is that the quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours, which means that if you drink coffee at 10 a.m. and you go to sleep at 10 p.m., you still have a quarter of the caffeine from that cup of coffee in your system. And that's almost certainly going to disrupt your sleep architecture. Now, if there's one thing that I could safely say is rejuvenative for humans, better skin, better libido, decreased aging, better mental clarity, associated with earning more money, it's getting good sleep. And yet we've just sort of relegated that to the back, to the back porch and said, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Or I'm working so hard, I'm only gonna get five hours tonight. Well. This is really, this is a Faustian bargain. I would not do anything that messes with your sleep architecture. It's a, it's a horrible bargain. And so things like alcohol, things like CBD, THC, marijuana, uh, benzodiazepines, Ambien, Lunesta, all the sleep medications, Benadryl, they all will negatively affect your sleep architecture. Even if you're doing something like having a drink of alcohol at night before you go to sleep and it helps you feel sleepy and relaxes you, it's negatively affecting the way your brain and your body are working in concert to bring you through your stages of sleep. So sleep architecture is what matters. That's pay dirt. And having a quarter of the caffeine that you drank at 10 a.m. in your system when you go to sleep is probably not great for optimal sleep architecture. And yeah, I think but, that people might say, oh, I want to do decaf coffee. Well, yeah, well, okay, great. Decaf coffee is probably better in some ways. Aside from the caffeine, 
A lot of coffee is going to be contaminated with mold toxins, pesticides, and other things. So yeah, you could probably find a coffee. I know there are coffees out there that are organic, that are wet processed and don't have mold toxins. And those are going to be better than regular coffees, but they're still going to have caffeine. So I just don't see a way around it. And I think that most people are, I don't drink coffee. Um, I have, it's a short time in my life when I was in physician assistant school, but it just gave me palpitations. And believe me, I loved it. I mean, a, a mocha, like coffee and chocolate, great, amazing. <laughs> got me hyped up, got me focused. I don't even know if I learned any better, but I was definitely like jittery. But it's just, to me, it's not worth it. And most of us, I think, are probably just kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of how busy our lives are, our commitments, our sleep, our families, our jobs. And I get it. I don't think coffee is the right answer to that, but uh, that's why I'm not a huge fan of it. But it. having said that, I think there are a lot of people who eliminate many things from their diet and feel really great on animal-based with organs, with meat, with fruit, with honey, with raw dairy, and they still drink coffee and they're fine. So right. take, that, take that for what you think, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. So one of my really great friends started following you and she actually FaceTimed me and she started taking liver and she literally was like, okay, I want you to watch this. So she took the liver, she sliced it up with scissors. She probably put the pieces about this big and she was like, watch how easy this is. So she literally took it. She swallowed it. It took two seconds. She actually had a friend over and she was like, see how easy this is. It's just like taking a vitamin. So I want you to talk about any tips on how to take liver and why you are such a fan of literally eating raw, raw liver. Yeah. So I went to Tanzania a few years ago and I spent time with the Hadza, some of the last remaining hunter gatherers on the planet. I wanted to see it firsthand. Believe me, they ate everything. They ate the whole animal. The day after we killed an animal, I ate the brain with the hunter who killed it. But if you look at what's available for us as humans today, most of our families have kind of lost our ethnic traditions. But in almost every ethnic tradition, whether you're Middle Eastern, my family's Mediterranean from Italy, Asian traditions, South American traditions, Central American traditions, uh, Native American traditions, whatever ethnicity your family is from, two or three generations ago, your ancestors were eating liver, without a doubt, and they were relishing it. And the reason that this sort of wisdom has been passed down is because liver is very nutritious. It's basically nature's multivitamin. And that may sound trite, but it's incredibly deeply true. If you look at the nutrients in meat, and I'm talking muscle meat, whether it's hamburger or steak, they're great. You've got zinc, you got B6, you got B12, you got some K2. But if you look at liver, it really complements what's in muscle meat. And there are many unique nutrients found in organs, specifically liver as a powerhouse of these, that are difficult to obtain outside of liver. Other B vitamins like folate, riboflavin, Biotin, which we know people think about for hair, skin, and nails. More K2, choline, things like copper to balance the zinc. And you and I had talked about copper. I know you had somebody on your podcast recently with copper and the importance of copper. And you know, you eat a few, you eat an ounce of liver, you're getting basically the perfect amount of copper by many people's estimation. So where do you get copper otherwise? There's not a lot of copper in red meat. So this is a metaphor that I sometimes maybe misuse. Like meat and organs are like peanut butter and jelly. They just go together. They're supposed to be eaten together. You kill an animal respectfully with your tribe. You celebrate that. You celebrate the fertility that it's going to bring to the tribe. You celebrate the strength it's going to bring to your family. You never waste the organs. When I was at the Hadza, 
they used hunting dogs and the dogs got the stomach and the intestines, but everything else was eaten by the, the tribe, whether it was the brains, the heart, whatever, the liver, the pancreas. But I think if you're going to start with an organ, start with liver. Heart is the easiest one to start with. In fact, my friend here who started animal-based was going to get heart today. Heart is the easiest one, but liver is sort of unique from heart. Heart is kind of like muscle meat, but has more coenzyme Q10 and a little more taurine. So heart is valuable too. But I think the easiest way to eat liver is just to do it raw. Now, there's always a risk of eating a raw food, whether it's a raw vegetable, a raw fruit, or a raw animal organ. So you want to know the sourcing. And you want to trust your producer. And you, with liver, you probably want it to be previously frozen. Are there examples of people who have gotten sick eating raw liver? Yeah. If you look at the literature, there's a lot of examples of people who have gotten sick eating raw spinach. So take, you know, choose your risk. You know, choose your own adventure here. If you don't want to eat liver raw, you can cook it. But the reason that I like to do it raw is because there are unique nutrients in liver that are probably somewhat degraded when you cook the liver. So I just think, okay. Wait, I want to ask you about that. So you're saying like first find a good butcher where you're going to get it. But then when you said like if you went to a butcher, what were the questions that you would want to know about that liver? And otherwise, if you didn't get it raw, then you wouldn't be able to cut it up like in those little tiny slivers and be able to take it like that. So do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So if I talk to a butcher, I want to know, is this grass fed and grass finished? Do you use any pesticides like Roundup or glyphosate on your property? How are the cows treated? Are the cows vaccinated? I don't want them to be, you know, like, are the cows given hormones? Are the cows given antibiotics? What did the liver look like when you took it out of the cow? And if you've seen liver, you know what a healthy liver looks like. It's dark. It's smooth. Doesn't have a bunch of scars on it. Things like this. So you can tell what a healthy liver looks like. And yeah, that's the main things with that. You can do it frozen or you can do it raw or you can do it cooked or you can do desiccated organs, which we'll talk about. So as far as raw milk and cheese, you know, here locally in Virginia, it's actually illegal to buy raw milk. I'm on a subscription so I can get it through a creamery that I know and they actually deliver it and we just pick it up each week. We can pick a gallon of raw milk. But I want you to kind of talk about why is like, why can you go to the grocery store and pick up raw cheeses, but for raw milk, it would be illegal? Yeah, I think because the cheeses are aged. They So if it's a raw cheese, it can't be a young raw cheese. It has to be a 60-day aged raw cheese. And there is this history with raw milk that gives raw milk a bad rap. So in the early 1900s, when cities were popping up around the United States and we had this industrial revolution. Prior to that time, when people were drinking milk, it was 100% raw. You know, 150 years ago, there was no such thing as pasteurized milk. It was all raw milk. And historically, humans have always drunk raw milk. The Maasai are famous for this, the Samburu. In fact, they mix it with blood, which you don't have to do, but I've had it and it's nutritious or it's delicious. It's pretty tasty. So raw milk is common. And if you are just careful with how the cow is treated and you clean the udders, super safe for humans. The problem historically was that when cows were being milked in cities, they were being fed the swill, which is technically the byproducts of alcohol fermentation, so the worst grains, and they were being milked in subsanitary conditions and people started getting really sick from raw milk and then pasteurization comes in. People still wanted milk. They found benefits of milk and they wanted pasteurized milk because they didn't want to get sick from raw milk. So. 
if if we lived in 1910, we wouldn't be doing this podcast um, virtually. But uh, you know, we would we would probably prefer pasteurization over the quality of milk that we could get in cities. So let's back up and talk about why you'd want to drink milk in the first place. Milk is quite nutritious for humans, especially raw milk. There's a very large amount of data suggesting that it's beneficial for humans of all ages, both child, children, and adults at the level of the immune system, which is really quite eye-opening. I went to the largest raw milk farm in the world, which is in Fresno, California. It's called Raw Farm. And I got to see how they do it firsthand. And I learned so much and I got to see, you know, this, this, the producer of this farm, the guy that started it and his family doing it. And we went through all the references we could find. I mean, there's studies in kids showing that children who grow up drinking raw milk on or off farms have lower rates of asthma, eczema, allergies, and hay fever. I wish I'd had raw milk as a kid. Probably because when you heat the milk, you change the conformation of some of the proteins in milk that are beneficial for humans, like whey protein, casein, other immunologic factors in the milk. I also grew up drinking skim milk because my family was afraid of fat, because my dad was a doctor and he was indoctrinated into this idea that milk fat is bad for humans, when now there's many, many meta-analyses showing that butter and butter fat and dairy fat, saturated fat, is beneficial from a cardiovascular perspective, or at least neutral. There's very little evidence that dairy fat is harmful for humans. So the fatty part of milk is where most 60 to 70% of the immunologic components, the immunologically active components in milk reside. So it's quite interesting to see that people are now afraid of milk. Most of us think that we are lactose intolerant, but the more I learn about this, the more fascinating it is. It's just the rabbit hole keeps going deeper and deeper. You realize that raw milk contains bacteria that are needed to make the lactase enzyme. So I'm lactose intolerant, but I don't have any problems drinking raw goat or cow's milk now because I've been drinking it for a little while. And it actually contains the things you need to digest it. So raw milk is nutritious, associated with decreased respiratory tract infections in kids, better improvements in the immunologic profiles of mothers that are drinking it, pregnant or not, decreased allergies, eczema. The way I think about raw milk now is that we all, hopefully, not all of us, but many of us, were blessed to be able to have breast milk as our first food from our moms. And mammalian milk is quite similar across species. And we know that breast milk is not sterile. It contains hundreds of cultures, hundreds of streets, species of bacteria, which are beneficial. It contains immunoglobulins, which are beneficial for our guts. And it's, a, it's an immunologic food that helps program our guts. And then we stop breastfeeding. Some of us may have just been formula fed our whole lives. So maybe we were never breastfed. And then we're exposed to things like antibiotics. I certainly got antibiotics as a kid, over-medication, toxins in our environment, and our guts are just destroyed. And so I think of raw milk from a good producer as a way to return to breastfeeding for humans in a cross-species model. And I think that mammalian milk, whether it's camel or horse or cow or goat, can be very helpful for homo sapiens when we have messed up guts. And I've seen this over and over anecdotally from people that I've worked with and talked to that they had messed up guts from excess herbs that they used to get rid of some so-called parasite or antibiotics. And raw milk or fermented raw milk, which is called kefir, some people say kefir, but it's kefir, um, this is very, very healing for our gut. So I think of raw milk as returning to breastfeeding, returning to programming our guts. And like I said, it works very well across species. It's a very nutritious food for humans. And I think the gut issues, like we talked about at the onset of this podcast, are the crux of our problems with 
human health. Mm. I want to talk about food combining for fruit for just a second. So when I was 19 and 20 years old, I was actually bulimic because I was a math major. And when you have your degree in math, like I do, your last two years of math, you don't even work with numbers anymore. Like you're past calculus and calculus too, and it's just so stressful. So my third and fourth year of college, I was bulimic. And then when I was pregnant with my son, I threw up six times a day the entire pregnancy. I was just like the sickest pregnant woman. I didn't even hardly gain that much weight because I just threw everything up. But for me, I know that when I eat fruit, you know, they talk about fruit combining in that, you know, with fruit, you should try to eat the fruit and then wait at least 20 minutes before you eat something else. Or if you have like meat, then wait two hours after having fruit. For me, I know that's really important only, but that might be only because, you know, all my, I don't have my stomach acid and my stomach is not great because of all of the throwing up that I did for my prior years. What is your opinion on food combining? Do you even look at that or it's not a problem for you? I think if if people have an issue with it, consider it, but I think most people shouldn't worry about it. So I think the default is don't worry about it. I I come back from surfing. I drink raw milk with honey. I eat fruit. I have orange juice. I eat meat and butter all together and no problems. All right. Well, I have one final question for you. And that is for if on the things that you on your list where you'd say this is a no, like these items are a no, what are the items that you would say, you know, I like you, you just kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. You talked about sweet potato. If I have to pick a potato, I'm going to pick a sweet potato. It's I'm going to try not to have it. But let's say I'm on vacation or I'm on, you know, I'm on a special, it's my birthday or something like that. And if I'm going to incorporate some of those items that are no, what are the items that you would say, this isn't the worst of the worst? The easiest thing for people there would probably be to check out Heart and Soil. This month, we're doing the Animal Base 30, which is a 30-day, free 30-day Animal Base Challenge. And you can go to Animal Base 30, animalbase30.com to sign up for that uh, if this is released in August um, in 2023. And with that, you get a bunch of resources. You get discounts on desiccated organs. I want to talk about the freeze-dried organs for people that don't want to do fresh organs. There's a community there. There's eating guides. There's recipes. And there's an animal-based guide that people can get. I believe on my website, paulsaladinomd.co, there's also an animal-based guide that has that stuff on it, like the red yellow and green foods. Rather than enumerating all of them, I would just say go there and look at like the mid-range foods. That's probably the easiest thing to do. But if this is released in August and you guys want to join us, it's even though it's mid-August or late August, you can get into Animal Base 30. We'll do another one in January of 2024. There's tons of resources there. But yeah, I would do that at Hardened Soil. And Hardened Soil is where is the company that I built to make freeze-dried organs. So like we talked about, when you cook liver, you are going to get rid of some of the nutrients. Well, the interesting thing about freeze drying is you can dehydrate liver at a very low temperature, lower than the temperature that's in your freezer in your house by reducing the pressure. So that's what freeze drying is called. That's how they make like space meals for astronauts. So what we've done is we take organs, grass-fed, grass-finished organs from cows in New Zealand, and you can freeze dry them and put them in a capsule. So if you don't want to do cooked liver or you don't want to do raw liver, you can do a capsule with liver. And we have capsules that have liver, heart, kidney, spleen, and pancreas, all these things just help people get on that train of getting organs in some way, shape, or form. I knew that when I started this 
organs were a key part of it because of these unique nutrient profiles. But I knew that my mom, my sister would probably not eat a lot of liver, but now they both will take the capsules and their kids, my, my sister's kids, my niece and my nephew will just, you can open the capsules in their food, put it in applesauce, smoothie, whatever. You can get kids to eat desiccated organs. It's like, it's such a good hack to give people that first little step. The goal is to get to fresh liver and as many organs as possible, but the desiccated to the freeze-dried organs, I think are a great stepping stone. And again, with Heart and Soil, we're doing that annual base 30 this month. People want those resources too. So if you guys go to heartandsoil.co and use the code Chantel Ray, you will get a big discount. So I want you to talk about if there was, and again, a lot of you listening are thinking, I'm not, like I'm drawing the line. I'm not taking liver, which is fine. This is your next best option. What's your favorite like if you had to pick, like, is it Firestarter or is it Warrior? Or is it the whole, like if someone said, I'm going to pick one or two things, what's your favorite? So I would imagine a lot of your audience is female. There's a supplement that we have at Heart and Soil called Her Package, which is pretty incredible for women. It contains liver and kidney, but it also contains uterus, fallopian tubes, and ovaries. So a lot of women with like hormonal issues benefit from this one. For the guys, there's something called whole package, which has testicle, blood, and liver. And the reviews on both of those are really, really cool. So I think that's like the men and women's supplements. And then broadly speaking, the sort of the, the overarching multivitamin is just beef organs, which is a broad array of organs, heart, liver, kidney, spleen, and pancreas in a capsule. And again, you can open them, put them in a smoothie, or just cap take them with fluid. It's pretty easy. Yeah. And you guys, this really is like the most nutrient rich supplements that you can find. And they are amazing. I have tried them. I absolutely love them. So just go to heartandsoil.co, use the coupon code Chantal Ray and save some money there. So Paul, if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you and where they can follow you? Um, I'm at Paul Saladino MD on all the socials. And the website is paulsaladinomd.co. So Instagram, Twitter, which is now called X, I think. Uh, YouTube, I've got a channel and a podcast. I've got a podcast, which is the Paul Saladino MD podcast. So if you search my name, and my last name is spelled ironically like salad, S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O. Oh my gosh, I never thought about that. That's hysterical. That's the, that's the common joke. So yeah, so you can find me anywhere if you just search Paul Saladino MD. And it's basically like salad. I said no, right? Like salad. I know, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, salad. <laughs> I question mark. No. Exactly. Or, yeah. Good way yeah. to remember it. Well, your videos that you do, you guys have to follow him. The videos that he does are absolutely amazing. They are life changing. And I just want to tell you, I just am so grateful for the work that you're doing. And I truly believe if you have autoimmune issues. I personally have a lot of autoimmune issues. To me, this is one of the best diets out there um, because in order for you to, like you said, you've got to heal your gut. And this is the most gut healing protocol that you can possibly do. So it might seem like it's stringent. It might seem like it's hardcore, but it, it, it you have to kind of weigh out the options. Like, okay, am I going to take methotrexate? Am I going to take prednisone? Am I going to take all these other things that are completely toxic for my body? Or am I just going to heal my gut 
through what I'm eating. So I just appreciate you really have kind of taken your life and just said, you know what? I care so much about people's health and you are making such a huge impact on so many lives. And so I just personally wanted to say thank you for all you're doing. You're making huge, huge impacts and I'm thank grateful you. for you. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful people find the content valuable. And I think that the idea is sometimes if you start a diet intentionally, then you can liberalize it later once you figure out what's going on. But start with, I mean, animal-based, I don't think it's that limiting, but because you can eat diff all the different types of fruit, you can eat raw milk, you can eat cheese, you can eat honey, you can eat meat and organs and things like squash and avocado. I mean, these are fruit, right? So they're not vegetables. We think of them as vegetables because they're green, but they're fruit because they have seeds. And again, all this information is at hardensoil.co or at paulsaladinomd.co. And so there's a lot of variety there that people might not be aware of. And then once you're feeling better, once your autoimmune issues are fixed or your gut is fixed or you're pooping regularly or you're feeling better, you can start to add things in one at a time and see what works for you and do your own experimentation. The goal is always to help people arrive at the most diverse, most interesting, most quality of life and enjoyable diet possible. But I think for a lot of people, the road to there needs to be done with intention or you don't really understand the foods that are causing issues. It's it's crazy to see, but I can't tell you how many people I've met at this point who just say, you know, I cut out vegetables and I feel so much better. And I think, damn, that's cool. Like their joint pain goes away. Their autoimmune issues go away. They have more libido. They sleep better, insomnia, depression, dementia. And some people it's wow. Okay. Not everybody's going to have massive issues with vegetables, but for a lot of people, they're not great because of all these defense chemicals. And if you cut them out, you don't feel any different, bring them back in your diet. But if you come out and feel better, that was free. Right. And there's so many people who are like, I feel like I'm doing everything right. Right. Like they're like, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm perfect. I'm check, check, double check, 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 double check. And then they still feel bad and still have joint pain and still have all these things. So this is something to really try. And what's so funny is I actually started your uh, protocol and all of a sudden, one of my friends in Costa Rica took a picture with you and she snapped a picture. She's like, look who I saw. Well, I had just started doing that. That's funny. Your protocol like a week ago, a week before that, if not a couple days. It was just a miracle. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's great to connect with you. Thanks for having yes. me. Thanks so much for being here. And you guys stay tuned. We've got another episode coming up in just a few. Bye-bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.